0: There was some spontaneous worship a bit earlier. I don't know if you felt God's presence come as as we started singing. God is holy. We don't mess with God. I felt just to say to us before I preach and to ask you, don't get offended with God's word. Okay? If it's God's word, don't get offended. If God puts his finger on something and it's like, oh, don't get upset with the preacher, whether it's me or someone else. Actually, go before God and say, God, are you, are you trying to get my attention with something? Because I'm a little bit nervous about what, to pre- what I'm preaching on today it might upset some of us. And I, I, my aim is not to upset people. <laughs> my aim is just to preach God's Word. And We're preaching through the book of John so that we don't skip over the hard topics and just do the nice, easy ones that make us feel good. We want a whole Bible understanding of what God's doing. Amen? Amen. So Father, I pray as we look at your word this morning, we open our hearts and we say, Jesus, have your way. King Jesus, Holy Jesus, seated on the throne, Jesus, have your way this morning. In your mighty name, amen. So turn with me to John chapter 2. We're going to read the second half of John chapter 2. Last week, we were in the first half of John 2. Jesus was at a wedding. He turned water into wine, and now John continues his account, John 2 and verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting if you look at all four Gospels, the Gospel of John is written deliberately. John looks at Jesus' life and ministry through the 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 lens or through the view of the different Jewish festivals. So, as we go through the book of John, you'll see Jesus doing this festival and this festival, and John tells the story from that perspective. Just an interesting side note, all right? So, he's going up for the Passover, not just any Passover, it's the Jewish Passover. Now, why would John write that? Is there any other Passover that we know of? No. So, probably John's readers he knew they wouldn't be Jewish. So, he says this is the Jewish Passover, just in case any of them didn't know. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Okay? So, this is the Passover, this is the temple in Jerusalem, and what would happen? The religious leaders required a temple tax to be paid. And it was a specific silver coin. You couldn't just pay normal drachma or denarius or whatever the currency was. It was a specific silver coin. And what would happen, the, the whole of Israel at some point in that week would come to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices and to worship and to pay their temple tax. There were hundreds of thousands of people coming over that time. And they had to change their money. They had to exchange it. It was like a currency exchange for the temple tax coin in order to pay it when they went in. So they had to have money changes, and normally those would be outside the temple, all right? No problem with that. There were also people selling cattle, sheep, and doves because part of the worship of the Jewish nation was sacrificing animals. It sounds horrible to us today, but that was the system that God had implemented for them. So can you imagine having to travel for a few days with your stubborn cow that you were bringing to Jerusalem to sacrifice? Now, they had to be defect-free, they had to be blemish-free, because you couldn't offer a defective sacrifice. It was very difficult, and with stubborn animals even more so. And so what would happen is that there were these, these kind of business people who had set up shop selling sacrificial animals, right? No problem, because they should have been outside the temple. I'm just trying to give you some context here. But this says here, in the temple courts... Where they shouldn't have been, Jesus finds all this business activity. So he made a whip out of cords, drove all of them from the temple courts, both the sheep and the cattle and the people, and scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered what, what is written zeal for your house consumes me, will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. He probably signified himself, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, looking at the building, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in him. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Maybe they had a superficial faith. They just saw a few miracles. They said, yeah, yeah, I believe I'm following this rabbi. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Difficult text in some ways. John chapter 2 started out with Jesus at a wedding, right? One of the first signs, John says, he changes water into wine. And then he clears or cleanses the temple. This is what J.C. Ryle writes about this. He says, To attend a marriage feast and cleanse the temple were among the first acts of our Lord's ministry at his first coming. To purify the whole church and hold a wedding banquet will be among his first acts when he comes again. We know when Jesus returns, there's going to be purifying of his people, a sorting out of sheep and goats, and the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. Wonderful how John positions us when he writes the gospel. But my first point this morning is that Jesus desires our worship. He doesn't need it. He doesn't feel better when we worship. He's not more God, more secure, more confident when we're all worshiping. He doesn't need it, but He desires it. And so, as I said, these money changers and these people selling animals should have been on the outside of the temple And God has no problem with that. It's helping, it's facilitating people worshiping and sacrificing properly, right? But Jesus arrives and he finds them inside the temple courts, in the outer courts, the court of the Gentiles, the only place where foreigners could go and worship God. And here's this market-like atmosphere, hustle, bustle, animals, bartering, negotiating, changing money. The smell of animals pooping in there. Like, picture it, right? It wasn't all sanitized like it's written here. Try and picture, put yourself there. Hundreds of thousands of people coming in, day in after day in. These people had become so keen on making a profit, they'd taken their business inside the temple where they shouldn't have been, right? It should have been a place of prayer, of spirituality, but it had become a marketplace, because the religious leaders wanted to exploit the temple, wanted to uh, take advantage of people's need to worship and sacrifice, and their greed got in the way, their selfish ambition got in the way. And that's why Jesus got upset. He expected to come to the temple and find people drawing close to God and praying to them to him, but he found. Greed and profit and money-making. He's not against those things, but they have their proper place physically at that time outside of the temple. My second point is Jesus did, and we should, deal radically with anything that hinders our worship. We should deal radically with it. And Jesus did, he makes a whip from cords, right? So he he gathers up some cords or some rope, and he starts plaiting them. He's looking around. This is a deliberate moment. Maybe it took him 10 minutes to make it. I don't know. It wasn't a rage that he flew into. It was deliberate, his actions. He makes a whip. And he starts chasing out the people, the animals, out the temple courts. And it would have been chaos. It would have been wild. It was dramatic. Can you imagine a 100 cows and a 100 sheep suddenly running wild among people? The sheep knocking over someone, falling on the floor. People shouting. He turns over the tables. Money's flying everywhere. Do you think they just would have looked at the money? No. What happens when a, when, a, when a truck falls over on the highway? People run and grab that stuff. There would have been mayhem and chaos. Doves flying everywhere. People running and shouting, getting upset with Jesus. It would have been a big scene. A massive scene. And in a sense, Jesus was claiming ownership of the temple. He was aware that he was the son of God, and people should have been there to worship him. In a sense, I think he was protesting at what he saw. He demonstrated his authority by driving them out, and he was thorough. He was radical. He didn't just go to like, you know, the guy selling dubs in the corner and say, um, excuse me, uh, this should be a house of prayer, this part. This, you know, can, can you just take your business? Just, can you just go outside and you talk to your other friends and take them with you. I don't want to make a scene, but no. He shouts. He drives them out. He's radical in dealing with the worship that should have been there that wasn't there. It was thorough. It was radical. And he deals with it on that basis. And what he did was a bit of a parable as well, an acted parable. He acts out this parable. He came to cleanse the temple, right? The physical temple. There should have been a place of worship, And pray and draw near to God. But for us today, the Bible says that we, me, you, all of us, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't come to a physical place. We do gather together. It could be here, could be in a tent, could be under a tree. The building is not important anymore. But we gather to worship. But he says, we are the temple. And so I think he's saying to us, we need to cleanse this temple, my life and your life. Sometimes need a cleansing from those things that clog our worship of God. I could read a very long list out of those things. The impurities, the sin, the greed, the selfish ambition, the anger, the envy, the offense, the meanness, the rudeness, the hate, the gossip, passivity, pessimism. Unbelief, unkindness. Friends, don't let those things linger in your life. They're going to steal and rob and choke God's life, God's presence, God's joy, God's peace. They're going to stifle it. They're going to put a lid on it. You're not going to be able to access it because you've got this stuff cohabiting in your life. And like Jesus did, we need to deal with those things radically. We can't just let them go on living in our lives in this temple of the Holy Spirit. You know what's the scary thing? Is that if we don't deal with it, Jesus might. Do you want Him to come to your life, suddenly turn over tables, make a big scene, expose your sin? No, no, God's a God of love. He would never do that to me. I would contest that this morning. King David, the man after God's own heart, he wasn't perfect. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. God allowed that to be exposed. How? Well, Bathsheba got pregnant. You can't hide a baby growing in your tummy. God allowed it to be exposed. I've got a friend, and none of you know him because he's in another country. He's never been to this church. And he, I promise you he has it. so don't try and think. And he had a secret sin, a terrible one, which obviously none of us knew about because it was a secret sin, a criminal secret sin. And he got married, and a few months after he got married, the police arrived one night at his home, arrested him, locked him up in front of his new bride, took him away to prison. He was in prison for, I think, more than a year She had no idea what was going on, but they had discovered the secret sin. He didn't deal with it, so God allowed it to be exposed. As you can imagine, their marriage went through a very difficult time. He's now out of prison, but he's got a criminal record, so it's hard for him to find work. And their whole lives have been changed because he didn't deal with the secret sin that no one knew about. That God is gracious and He restores and this man has repented and changed his ways. And their marriage is on the right place again. But man, what a detour from the things of God. And I think it's God's kindness and His grace when He allows things to be exposed. Why? He doesn't want broken fellowship. He doesn't want anything to hinder our relationship and to stop us running the race that He's called out for us. It's His kindness that He turns over tables in our lives. Maybe God's already turned over some tables in your life this year or last year. I don't know where you're at. Maybe He's standing ready at the table about to turn it over. Friends, deal with that thing. I guess this is a similar point, but, but Jesus takes our worship pretty seriously. He's willing to make a scene to get our attention. He's more interested in your heart being right before Him than in you being embarrassed or ashamed or exposed because of what you did. Okay. In fact, in this case, He messes up several businesses, the massive wake-up call. And often, friends, let's just be honest, for myself as well, sometimes our attention drifts, our attention shifts, and suddenly God and His kingdom kind of go falls down the priority list in our lives right they become less important to us and Jesus comes and he's willing to turn over the tables to make a scene to get our attention again so that our attention can be in the proper place and one thing is frightening is for God to do that in my life and I man I don't want that God let me deal with whatever it is now you know what's more scary God lets you carry on in that thing, and He doesn't point it out, or maybe our hearts get so hard we don't even hear Him speaking. God will let the prodigal wander far away. Sometimes He does that. There's no formula, oh, this group of people, God will bring them back quickly when they stray, and this group of people, God will let them wander, let them choose their own choice. I don't know why God does that to some and not to others. But that scares me more that God would let me do my own thing than God would bring you back to Him. I think God, one of the things Jesus was saying to the people in the temple there and now, just arriving at the temple, that's not worship. Just pitching up at church on a Sunday, yeah, sure, it's ticking the box, but but are you worshiping? And God is a jealous God. He wants our heart. He doesn't want us to be here in body only, but in heart and mind and soul and spirit. He's after our hearts. He says, I won't share my glory with another. The worship that should be for God, we can't put it onto something else. Something created, something earthly, something inferior. And that's what we do. Life gets busy and we, we do all kinds of stuff. And we have other priorities. God is jealous for our affection and our devotion, our attention. What about our worship? The Israelites had to bring an animal to sacrifice, as gory as that sounds. But that would have cost them something, right? Right? Uh, I'm not in the Zulu culture, but I know you, you have to pay lebola. and sometimes you pay in cows or sheep. What's the going rate for a sheep now? Anyone know? How many? 7,000 for a sheep. How much for a cow? A cow, 7,000. How much for a sheep? Two and a half. That's a lot of money, now you bring your best cow or your best two cows, 14 grand, your sacrifice, your worship costs you something. It's not cheap, plus the time you have to travel to get there. Remember what King David said? One of his subjects in his kingdom offered to give him some land to build an altar to worship, as any of us would offer our king for free. He says, no, David said, I'm going to pay you the full price. I refuse to worship for something that cost me nothing. I will not offer a sacrifice that cost me nothing. And sometimes I think, friends, our worship is too easy compared to what it was. We don't have to copy what happened all those years ago. We don't have to walk or ride a donkey for several days and bring a cow and watch it get slaughtered. We do to stand in line and wait for the priest, etc. All we need to do is just pop our earphones in. And we can just listen to Elevation Worship or Maverick City Music or whoever you listen to. You know, you've got a few extra minutes at the end of whatever you're doing. I'll just pop it in and sing along to Bethel or Hillsong, whoever it might be. And I wonder if we've reduced our worship to singing a few Christian songs and a warm, fuzzy feeling. And actually, it's our whole lives. We, every day we are worshiping. Might not feel like it, might not look like it, but I wonder in our modern day and age, if we've just shrunk it down that worship is just a few songs on Sunday or when I'm driving to work. I wonder what these saints of old would think of our worship. They came and spent a month watching our lives. What would they think of worship, of our worship? What would Jesus think of our worship? What if Jesus physically came here today and looked at our corporate worship? We, we sung four songs this morning. What would He say about that? I wonder. But well, one thing I know that we often, me included, get into the habit, we think that worship is singing. And the rest of my life is not worship. But actually, our lives are thousands upon thousands of acts of worship every day. We are worshipers. It's not a question of, will I worship on a Sunday, or I worship and I'm listening to this music, or singing this song, or I'm in nature and I feel close to God, that must be worship when I'm taking a walk or hiking. Worship, it's not a question of when do we worship. We are worshiping. The question we should ask is, what or who are we worshiping every day? You might say, well, Clement, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I'm born again. Of course I worship God. I come on Sunday. But like Jesus kind of implied, you can rock up on a Sunday and not worship. <laughs> it's possible. As frightening as that sounds to say. How do we know what test can we apply to see who or what we're worshiping? I think there's a few. I think we can look at how we spend our time, our treasure, our talents, our money, our energy. Where we sacrifice down to those things, I think that's a good indication of what we worship. Right? The things that we hope in, the things that we derive our security or our identity from, those are possibly our idols, false gods, things that we worship. We don't like the word idol because we think of a little statue bowing down to it possibly. But we easily fill our lives with lots of stuff. Earthly pursuits. We look to more alternative and convenient idols to bow down to, to offer our time to, etc. To look for our hope in that thing, in my bank account, in my job, in my family, whatever it might be. And what we end up doing is offering the dregs, the leftovers, to God. And I think we're myself included, I think we're often fooling ourselves. Offering God the leftovers, thinking it's okay. Actually running around after all these other gods and idols. And the fact is, Jesus takes our worship very seriously. And we should too take our worship of Him very seriously. My last point this morning Might seem a little bit out of track with the rest. But the resurrection proves the authority of Christ. These Pharisees, they ask him, This chaos, this commotion that you're creating, how dare you tell us what to do with our temple? How dare you interfere and intervene with how we think worship should go? What right do you have, carpenter's son? What does Jesus answer? In fact, they say, prove it to us. Give us a sign. Show us some evidence that you have the authority to drive these people out, to change how we worship. You know what Jesus answers? He answers, he actually prophesies. He says, destroy this temple. This is the sign. Destroy this temple. I'll raise it in three days. Now, they didn't get the meaning. It was veiled to them. The disciples only figured it out later after he died and rose from the dead. But it was a prophecy to them, when you destroy this body, then you will see evidence. And that evidence is me rising from the dead in three days. See, Jesus doesn't perform a sign or a miracle on demand, especially not to those who are antagonistic to him. Right? But he says, no, there is a sign. I'm prophesying now. And isn't it ironic that the people he prophesies to, they're the one who fulfill the prophecy. They try and destroy his body, the temple of his body. I think it's ironic. <laughs> they were the ones the prophecy was fulfilled. And his disciples remember his words later on and realize he's talking about this physical body. Another time, some months later, a similar situation plays out, Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus was teaching some difficult things. And again, the Pharisees say, how dare you give us some sign that your words are true, Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's he saying? Like Jonah was dead, he was the belly of the fish, so I am going to be dead for three days, I'm coming back, and that's the sign. The resurrection is the evidence and proof that Christ has the authority to tell us how we ought to worship in this temple. We need to get that, friends. Okay? God, Christ, Jesus, He's the one who tells us how our worship should look. Not the singing part, you no, know, that's part of it, but our whole lives. And he wants us to cleanse this temple for acceptable and proper worship. And he says, you want evidence that I can tell you how you are to worship and serve me and live your life and lay it down and, and offer it on a sacrifice, like Roman 12 says? The resurrection. I overcame death. It's the evidence and proof that Christ can tell us how we are to worship and how we are to live. So friends, I want to ask us all this morning to evaluate your temple, evaluate your life through whatever filter you need to, because I promise you, we don't want God coming in, turning over tables in our lives, because there's stuff that we haven't dealt with. Whatever it might be, big or small, it's not the issue, but it's stopping us from connecting with God, right? He doesn't want that. It's His grace that He puts His finger on stuff. Why? Because He wants us to live free and whole and to run with perseverance the race that He's marked out for us. At least if you don't know if there's something in your life that He's not pleased with, then say, God, examine my heart. Holy Spirit, come and see if there's an unclean way within me as David prayed. Otherwise, God... Jesus might come and cleanse it, and that's going to be chaos and unpleasant, and He might expose stuff. Can we stand? I want to pray for us as we're ending. And, and here, are, here are three ways that I want us to end as we're prayerful, as we're meditating on what God is saying. And God's saying different things to different people, which is how the Holy Spirit works. But the first thing we need to do is repent. If God has highlighted something, repent. Turn around. As Peter preached, repent and change our wicked ways so the times of refreshing may come. Some of us, secondly, might need to confess to tell someone else. Confessing and repentance are different things. Confessing is telling someone that you trust, that you look up to in a spiritual way to help you get through it. Repentance is saying, God, I know that thing's wrong and I'm turning away from it and doing something different. That's repentance. So repent. Some of us, God might say, not for everyone, but for some of you, God might say, go and tell someone. Let them pray with you. Let them help you work it out together. And then thirdly, let's invite Jesus to be Lord of that area. And let's hope he doesn't come along with a whip to that part of our lives. Because the reason why it's in the state it's in It's because we've shielded from Him. We haven't let Him be Lord of that particular part of our lives. We haven't let Him have the throne. Amen? So, Father, this morning, uh, I'm not even sure how to end, Lord. But I know, Father, you take our worship so seriously. Not just the singing of songs, but our whole lives. And not just the stuff we see on the outside, but what's in our hearts. And Jesus, only you know those areas that are causing you displeasure, that are clogging our worship, that are hindering, that are slowing us down. From connecting with you, from serving you, from following you, things that are tripping us up over and over again, the thing that we're going around the mountain over and over again. Father, you know those things, and I invite you, Lord, into my life. By your spirit, come and search my heart. See if there's an offensive and unclean way within me. Father, point it out to us. Maybe you've already highlighted it months ago. Father, show us that we could deal with it, that we could cleanse this temple. And Father, if we are too scared to, we ask, we dare to ask, Jesus, would you cleanse that temple? Far better to have to, pick up the pieces, but have God on our side, helping us do it, than to be like a prodigal son and wander and wander far away from God. Father, give us an attitude, an approach, a spirit, if you like, of radical sorting out our stuff, dealing with the gunge in our life. Father, we We treasure your presence and we know Jesus. We don't want you in our lives with a whip. We want you in our lives on your throne, ruling, reigning, and experience the fullness of all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would like someone to pray for you, some of our leaders are gonna hang around the front. We'd love to Pray for you if you feel you need that.